Welcome to Higher Voltage. I'm your new host, Kevin Tyler, and I'm the Director of Communications for UCLA's School of Nursing. Each week, I will explore the ins and outs of higher education marketing with industry thought leaders. For today's show, we sat down with two higher ed professionals to discuss how HBCU marketing has been impacted by two pandemics, a global health crisis and a cry for racial justice in America. Let's get started. Higher Voltage is brought to you by Salesforce. Today's higher ed marketers are faced with new challenges and must expand beyond their traditional tactics to engage with constituents. Learn how Salesforce empowers institutions of all sizes to unify first party data, build and measure targeted campaigns, and deliver personalized messaging across channels. Visit salesforce.org to learn more about how Salesforce can help your institution meet its goals. So, Chelsea and Eddie, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, before we get started in our conversation, can each of you just introduce yourselves and your institutions? Chelsea, let's start Absolutely. with you. Uh, my name is Chelsea Harley. I serve as the Interim Director of Admissions at Spelman College and super happy to be having this conversation today. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about Spelman? Just a, a high level kind of re- overview about Spelman and what it offers and for whom? Absolutely. Um, Spelman is a HBCU. It's a women's college as well as a liberal arts college. We're here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, We're part of the Atlanta Consortium. So we have Morehouse as a neighbor. We have Clark Atlanta as a neighbor, uh, Morris Brown. So there is a lot of history um, on the Spelman campus. Um, So really just a uh, integral part to, to what's been going on in Atlanta for years. Awesome. Thanks, Chelsea. Eddie. Hey, I'm Eddie Francis. I'm the uh, Director of Communications and Marketing at Dillard University. We are actually Louisiana's first HBCU, born from the Union of Straight University um, and New Orleans University. Uh, and so uh, we, we are we are uh, in a really great place um, in which we actually have, we share New Orleans with two other great HBCUs, Xavier University of Louisiana and Southern University at New Orleans. Awesome. So, uh, can each of you explain, uh, from your perspective, just kind of the landscape of HBCUs, some of the obstacles that we're facing the segment uh, in higher ed prior to the pandemic? Yeah. So, um, I would say that HBCUs naturally have so much history and tradition. Um, so, we've been telling that story for some time. Um, some of the big obstacles pre pandemic. It's just the population that we serve. Um, It's a value proposition that we're making all of the time. Um, We have our students are more likely to be first gen, more likely to be low income. Um, And so while we're giving them all of the information and wanting them to come here, also making sure they're making a good financial decision for their families. Um, Historically, we're underfunded. Um, We have much lower endowments than um, our peer institutions that are PWIs. Um, So that plays out in a number of ways when we're talking about attracting students. Awesome. Eddie, anything to add there? What she said. No, um, (laughs) but uh, Chelsea really did cover a lot of issues uh, that are are prevalent among HBCUs. Uh, One of the issues that we've had to deal with here at Dillard is we've had to deal with enrollment challenges. And one of the reasons is something, you know, going back to one of the things that Chelsea pointed out, uh, getting students, a lot of whom are first gen students, they have to kind of figure out how to do college uh, in the first place. Uh, Funding, though, also really became a big issue with a lot of students who just financially, they would just run out of steam. Um, and they would get in these situations where they would just have to leave school. One of the things we did at Dillard, uh, you know, a few years back um, is uh, President Walter Kimbrough put in place uh, a fund called the SAFE Fund. And this SAFE Fund was designed to help students stay in school. So a lot of our fundraising has been geared towards really beefing up that SAFE Fund so that the students who are about to run out of gas, we can go ahead and give them that extra money so that they could stay in school. So enrollment is is a big challenge that uh, that we've had to deal with. And one of the biggest reasons uh, would be the fact that students have these financial challenges. Awesome, thank you for that. Chelsea, um, can you uh, kind of touch on some of the obstacles that may have existed in the marketing space for Spelman before the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we were getting away from print materials in the mail. Um, Everything was going digital. Um, We started some digital marketing campaigns coming into the pandemic. Um, Little did we know that there will be digital burnout. 
Um, and so a lot of the spaces we were getting into now, we're seeing there's still some novelty and um, the in-person, the physical pieces that they can pick up and touch. Um, so the, the pandemic, we pivoted. And then immediately after, I think we're looking back and trying to say, okay, let's reevaluate what we were doing before um, and make sure that we're not uh, counting it out too soon. Yeah, when when you talk about uh, some of the obstacles that we were facing, um, one of there there are two things that really stood out to me, and these are pretty these are pretty much thirty thousand foot level uh, marketing issues. But one was a perception of the value of HBCUs in the college marketplace. Uh, there was you know there was this running conversation about whether or not HBCUs were really good schools because we might not have had the resources that one of our PWI neighbors or all of our PWI neighbors might have had. We might not have had the facilities. And so in in some cases, you would have these students that would tour a PWI and then they would come to Dillard and they're saying, well, it's not quite as shiny, so I'm not so sure this is the place I need to be. I'm not so sure this is a good place to be. Um, luckily, though, one of the good things that happens is that once students do come to Dillard and they do make they do uh, take these tours, they love the way they're received here. Um, but another marketing challenge is I think is more of a societal challenge. And there, there was this running conversation. And this is actually one of those conversations that kind of gets my blood boiling. But there was this running conversation that I saw that really bubbled up a lot on social media about whether or not college is even valuable in the first place. And that started, I noticed that happened a lot in the black community. And one of the things that I started to really notice is that once you got into these conversations about college and what you can do with the opportunity, there would always be this one voice that would come into the conversation and say, we know college ain't for everybody. So do we really need to do this? Uh, they need to go learn a trade. It's, you don't need to go to college to get a job. And, and there was this battle, I think, uh, for a lot of black scholars who really understood higher education to go back into the community and say, hey, listen, this is about more than a job. <laughs> this is about much bigger things. This is about establishing a legacy for your family. This is about making sure you can build generational wealth. So we need you to look beyond this conversation about a job and look at some of the bigger pictures. And so um, when that happens, you know, that conversation started to bubble up. I did notice, you know, with some of my friends who are professors at HBCUs, or they might even professors at PWIs, who would say, man, you know, I don't know how to get across to our people that this college ain't for everybody thing is really a dangerous conversation. Maybe some folks can say that, but Black folks, we got to watch it when we say that. And so that was something that I think started to come into play. And when you would talk to, and listen, it was a really, really tense conversation where even though you were presenting an HBCU to them, where they could go to, where they could go and see their people, they're still saying, I don't know, I don't need to spend all that money. I just need to go get a job. And so to me, that became a really big marketing challenge um, on a much bigger scale. I love those points you raised in those comments, Eddie. I think the first one that really resonated with me of the many that you made um, is this idea of the shininess of the campus, right? And so, you know, at that at the height of the kind of higher ed arms race where you see these climbing walls and lazy rivers, the, you know, those two things that people always point to in higher ed marketing uh, material, that those, those shiny things, an underfunded university or college is never going to be set up for success in that kind of uh, uh, conversation, right? And so when the, the quality of a place is based so uh, so much on what is the lazy rivers and the climbing walls, then places like HBCUs who are historically underfunded will not ever be able to like participate in that kind of um, transaction. And then the second piece that I think is really, really important um, that you raised is this conversation that was occurring before the pandemic even started about the quality, I'm sorry, the, um, the benefit of college uh, as an idea at all, right? And so when I first got into higher ed marketing, um, we were, our focus was, you know, come to X university, it's great. But as I, as time went on, we were not only selling the brand, but we were selling the idea of an education at all because think there are so many competitors now. And so what were the, some of the things you were trying to do to kind of stave off or change that conversation before the pandemic uh, to express the value of a higher education for the, the audiences you serve? 
I think one of the things for me personally in having conversations just with people I know personally, it was always this idea of you can go to a college and you can fail safely there. If you if you go straight into the workforce and you fail, <laughs> you know, losing a job is losing a job and you really don't have much of anywhere to fall after that. But in college, I think you have this environment where you can go in and things don't work out, but there's always a way for you to get back on the horse and keep on going. Um, you have systems in place, you have organizations, you have all of these different tools that a college can have that can that can show you how to survive, you know, the workforce and, and all these different things and how to build a career instead of depending on a job. And so those are some of the conversations. But I think from a pure marketing standpoint, I think selling the idea of this being a place where you have a built in network of people who can get you wherever it is you want to go in life. And it doesn't matter where it is, you know, of course. And I, and I know that this is something that Chelsea and the good folks at Spelman deal with. But this faulty perception that HBCUs are not diverse populations. Um, you know, my, my son is a rising senior in high school. So one of these conversations I've had with him is, listen, if you go to a Dillard, you're going to meet students from all over the country. You're going to meet students from other parts of the world. But the biggest thing is they're not all going to be like you. They're going to all think differently from you. And they're going to challenge you, too, to be your best self. So you could get it there or you can get it in another place, but you're still going to get it there or you're going to get it at another HBCU. So I, I think that was that was one of the big selling points for me, and it still is one of the big selling points for me. Chelsea, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so Eddie, I love you bringing up kind of selling the value um, of college. And this is a, a conversation that's gone on, but now has kind of a different look to it for this generation. Um, they've watched their millennial parents, siblings be in crippling loan debt. Um, right. And and not really getting the promises that that they thought that they would get from a college degree. Um, and this is also our Internet generation. Um, so they're seeing their peers that are making money uh, on YouTube from the age of 12. Um, so it's a really interesting landscape um, where more students, I think, are having that thought independently. Um, maybe there are some other options out here for me. Um, so again, just letting them know and being able for us to communicate, especially for HBCUs, that this is kind of a transformational process. Um, that's how we think about Spelman. When you come in each year, each activity you participate in, studying abroad, um, this is a longer transformation that is more than just getting an education. I love that. Can you explain some of your um, the goals that you had uh, in place uh, for your institution, if you feel comfortable sharing them uh, before all of this went down? One of the biggest goals that I had was really creating a clear unifying language um, about Dillard and its value in the college marketplace. Um, and I say that because, you know, I think Dillard is one of the schools among many other HBCUs that for so long had been used to people just coming because they knew it was a good place to be. They just knew. But we've had to face this harsh reality, a lot of HBCUs, especially smaller HBCUs. We've had to face this really harsh reality that the PWI across town, you know, they got the cheat code. They figured out what they figured out what they could do. They figured out that they could dangle some really nice gaudy scholarships. Um, and they could get those highly talented black students that would have gone to a Dillard or a Xavier or a Suno or wherever or a Spelman Morehouse, Morris Brown or Clark Atlanta. They, they figured that stuff out along the way. So what has happened in effect? And, and Dillard is the third HBCU where I've worked. And what has happened in effect, and I've seen this for a third time, is that there's been this need to really come up with language that really galvanizes the folks on campus, it galvanizes the students, it galvanizes the alumni. Um, and, and I'll give you a good example because people might be asking, what am I thinking about? But uh, I remember I had this conversation early on and someone said, well, I don't think language is, is our big thing. We, we just need to get some better advertising. We just need promotional stuff. And I said, yeah, well, what do you think is going to go on that promotional stuff? And so they challenged me on this whole thought of a language. And I said, OK, listen, one of our great HBCUs in the country is Howard. 
And I have so many friends who went to Howard. And if you ever want Howard to sell itself, all they have to say is the Mecca. Those two words are huge unifying words. Um, you know, I, I have cousins who graduated from Morehouse. You know, uh, you can tell a Morehouse man, but you can't tell him much. <laughs> so you have all of these different types of phrases. You have this language. And this is language that really binds people in these communities. And so for me, that was a marketing challenge that I was so ready to take on. And that was my big goal. My big goal was I'm going to figure out what this language is. I'm going to figure out how we can speak Dillard around here and how we can use that to really express to people what our value proposition is. I love that idea, Eddie. I think so. My sister went to an HBCU. She went to Hampton. Um, I don't know any other kind of higher ed brand that has the legacy and allegiance that HBCU brands tend to have. And it's, you know, familial. It's almost like Black Greek. It's like we went to Hampton and this is our class. It's very, very uh, specific in the passion and love that uh, alums from HBCUs have. And I've always been so curious about why that hasn't translated into higher um, endowments and, you know, more and more students just because of the, the love that is always expressed in every conversation with an HBCU. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm curious, Chelsea, if you have, uh, if you could go over some of the goals that you had for Spellman as well. Yeah. So, um, of course, meeting enrollment is always a goal. Um, but, you know, really attracting the right types of students um, is, is a big goal for us all the time. Um, to Eddie's point, we are now and were before the pandemic, um, but more so now in direct competition with PWIs or our students. Um, these are, especially as a selective HBCU, um, our students are looking at full rides from Harvard and Yale and USC. Um, and so that value proposition looks incredibly different um, when they have the opportunity to go to a big name elite PWI. Um, and now we have to say why Spelman matters, why Xavier matters, right? So having that, that conversation with them. Um, same, it's really been the, the same goals pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Um, how we get there looks a little different, um, but really just putting us on the main stage, not only in the HBCU box. That's a perfect segue, Chelsea, to move into the, the pandemic era. Um, and I want to be real clear here that we're not just talking about the pandemic and the, and the health global disease uh, aspect. We're also talking about the racial pandemic that happened in America last year, too, because those are going to be drivers uh, for your enrollments, uh, I would imagine, as well. But before we dive into some of that stuff, um, can you talk about you know, some of the things you've learned over these last 18 or so months about the institution and how you have to communicate uh, when things go left the way that they did the last year? Uh, one of the things that I think we learned is that there's so much, there's so much importance in empathy um, in messaging. And that's something that we really had to start focusing on with our current customers. You know, one of, one of my things uh, is that when it comes down to internal communication, you know, that's something that I definitely want to treat as a PR strategy. And so um, when we started messaging, um, you know, President Kimber, one of the great things about him is that he has no hesitation about calling a group of students together and using them as a focus group to really figure some things out about the campus. The summer of 20, he did that several times. And our students told us two things. One, they wanted to see empathy in the messages because they were already tired before even getting to school. So we're talking about June, July, and they're already saying that they're tired. We haven't even gotten to the first class yet. But the other thing was, is they really wanted us to stop trying to pretty up our messages. They said, okay, just be direct. Just tell us, just tell us what you have to tell us. You don't have to give us a long introductory paragraph in the email saying, we know that you've been through a lot and all this. They said, listen, just tell us what's going on and we'll be fine. But at the same time, please be empathetic about what it is that you're saying. Um, they also told us, I have to say, this goes along with the empathy message, that when there were cases on campus, they wanted to make sure that those students felt seen still and they weren't treated um, as if they had to get cast off to the leper colony. So the the students were pretty clear about those two things. And so because they were so clear about it, that's something that we learned. We learned that those two things are really important 
Um, besides one of the basic things that you want to do is get your messaging out as quickly as possible when situations are happening. But, uh, but I think we really learned that empathy was a real value that we had to dive into and to, had to really think about when we were messaging to our population. Chelsea, what did Spellman do? Or learn, I'm sorry. I would say uh, a unifying voice between our departments that can often be siloed on campus. Um, and so if we're sending out messaging from the president's office, um, we want to make sure we're echoing that sentiment in admissions and housing and career services. Um, so certainly being empathetic on the larger scale, um, but being empathetic one on one, um, you know, me having a short conversation with a parent, just saying, I hear you. I know you're getting emails. I know you haven't talked to anyone. I know you're not on campus, um, but we hear you. So I think kind of going back to that familial legacy of HBCUs, even though we're at home, we're not able to connect in person. Um, I really tried my hardest to have those one-off touches um, and just as pulse checks with our community. What are some of the things that you uh, that may have changed about your communication strategy or approach over the pandemic? Um, things you stopped doing, things that you started doing, et cetera? Yeah, so social media has always been really big for us. Um, I think it absolutely exploded during the pandemic. Um, we have different social media pages that would connect and maybe we would cross promote um, an Instagram live takeover. Um, that was really helpful because not only is it messaging to our prospective students, it's reaching out to alumni, it's reaching out to um, corporate constituents that may be following us. Um, and so I feel like social media was a very personal way of us getting our story out there in the pandemic. Um, of course, virtual events. Um, so we've adopted virtual event platforms. Um, we did a 360 virtual tour. Um, so a number of things to really catch us up to, frankly, some things that probably should have already been in place pre-pandemic. But it was a wake-up call to tell us that everything that they're experiencing on campus, we have to do the best to model that digitally. Yeah, and for us, it was about being more intentional in those spaces, being more intentional about our social media, uh, and really thinking about what that strategy look, for, look like. Uh, my biggest question was, we have this pandemic, we have all this virtual stuff happening, there's got to be a way to leverage it. And the way that I found that we could leverage it is we started posting like crazy the virtual panel discussions that the different areas of the campus were having. Um, as a matter of fact, our uh, Minority Health and Health Disparities Research Center uh, did a great series of panel discussions about COVID-19 and comorbidities uh, in the African-American community and the health disparities in the African-American community. So we started posting that stuff on our YouTube channel because that became a big focus for us. How do we really, really use this YouTube channel? How do we maximize it? And we're not even there yet. We're not even close. But as we started to post these events, we did find that we were able to leverage that stuff for our YouTube channel very well. As a matter of fact, uh, from June of 2020 to December 2020, we saw an 8% increase in YouTube views, our subscribers, I should say. Uh, from January of this year to this month, June, we had a 13% increase in subscribers. And so I attribute that directly to really leveraging the virtual environment, the panel discussions, the lectures. Um, you know, last year we did a virtual a virtual degree conferral for the class of 20, and that went over really well. So really leveraging those pieces during the pandemic uh, were some things that I found were helpful to us. That's great. I want to like just shift gears just a touch because obviously last year, uh, around this time actually, um, the, we were experiencing kind of the world on fire, right? There were uh, um, demonstrations, the death of George Floyd uh, at the end of a long string of other police brutality and, uh, and unarmed shooting deaths. I'm curious uh, what those events did or meant for your universities and what kind of response did you execute against it? What kind of conversations did you start, activities, et cetera? Well, for us at Dillard, uh, our immediate response to it was to create a Center for Racial Justice. Um, and it is uh, something that uh, one of our board members felt very strongly about. And so as a matter of fact, the, the board members, our board chair, Michael Jones, who was actually the, uh, the lead, uh, lead counsel for the Maryland HBCU case. 
And so, um, you know, Chairman Jones felt very strongly that this should be our response, especially with his dealing with the Maryland case. And so uh, actually, you know, with the with the founding of the Center for Racial Justice, they are actually one of the big contributors to our YouTube uh, uh, subscriber increase that I just talked about a second ago. And, you know, that actually has enabled us as an institution to have some robust conversations about what exactly does justice look like when it comes to making adjustments and how policing is done. Um, but then also it, it started to filter into other conversations that the Center for Racial Justice did as far as equity and education. And so um, these conversations really expanded. We started to also bring a lot of other folks into the conversation. Um, there was a recent panel discussion that we did with the New Orleans Public Defender's Office and they gave some great feedback and some great information about knowing people's rights when they are dealing with law enforcement. Uh, but at the same time, I think also is is really enabled us to take a look at what a relationship with law enforcement looks like from an institutional level. So that's something that that the Center for Racial Justice is still working on, wanting to really make that a really great uh, relationship and, and continue a great relationship. And I do have to give props to NOPD because they've been responsive, um, New Orleans Peace, uh, Police Department. But that was that was our biggest answer to what was going on. Chelsea, would you like to share any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I would say as a liberal arts institution, um, we are always having those conversations um, about what this looks like. But it was a, a perfect storm, for lack of a better term, um, as the pandemic hit, this happens. Um, our world has always been on fire, right? But I think that last summer, everyone's world was on fire and um, you couldn't look away. Um, and so our immediate uh, conversations were with corporate um, America reaching out to us and what, you know, what can we do? How can we, you know, contribute to HBCU? So it was a, it's a very special moment. I think we're still in it. Um, it is the year and now the second year of the HBCU. Um, and I think just telling these uh, donors how they can help us in a meaningful way, um, because we know that they um, are benefiting off of being connected and, and, and giving money to HBCUs, um, but making sure it's going the right places. Are we building pipelines to actually influence the organization? Um, at meaningful levels. We've had partnerships with uh, Morgan Stanley this past year, um, Netflix, um, a number of, of, of big companies, um, but it's kind of like, what's next? Um, what does this turn into and, and how can we sustain this partnership between HBCUs and, and corporate America? I love that. I think it was such an, uh, a focal point um, for another conversation to rise up in America in the context of a pandemic, there were so many things being like uncovered, uh, quote unquote uncovered, which we always knew were there, the inequalities in education and healthcare, et cetera. Uh, but um, kind of they all surfaced at once. And I, um, I'm curious about how the leadership of your institutions may have been uh, shifted into another role um, because of the things that have happened in the in the past 18 months. Uh, did they step forward into the light? Did they? Was there more uh, more hands on? Like, what did what did leadership look like at your school uh, during this difficult time? <laughs> well, <laughs> so the hip hop prayers, uh, once again, Rose, he he struck, and so. Um, he, you know, one thing, uh, one thing I love about President Kimbrough is he doesn't shy away from having hard public conversations. And he wrote, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say it was a scathing editorial, but it was certainly an editorial that called a lot of people to the carpet and really challenged them on statements. And uh, I think the if I remember correctly, the title of the editorial was No More Statements. So in in the in the wake of all of this, his challenge to people was don't just make a statement when you see injustice do something if all you have is a statement save it save it just just don't say it don't worry about it because it's not about what you say it's about what you do um and, and there's one point i want to expand on very quickly uh, you know when chelsea talked about engaging private donors this this really got us to a point where we started to have some real conversations with prospective donors 
Uh, there were some folks who came along and said, hey, I got some money and I'm going to give it to you. And we're sitting here going, OK, why? What's going on? What's we want it, obviously. But what's this about? And in some cases, we found out that the intentions may not necessarily been the most genuine intentions. Um, and so we we really wound up uh, getting to this place where our leaders said, if we're going to have a conversation about racial justice or about any other, any social justice, it can't just be a conversation. It can't be a performative gesture. It has to be something that's going to lead to sustainable change, real change. You know, we have students who elected not to come to campus in 2021 because they didn't want to be at risk of catching COVID-19. So they're sitting at home doing school virtually. But the problem is their internet connection is horrible. They live in an area where they can't get great internet access. They're in a two bedroom home. They have three brothers and sisters. They're all cramped. How, how is your giving going to change that, <laughs> you know? And instead of making these statements, what are we going to do as far as making real policy changes? Uh, which, again, that that brings forward the purpose of the Center for Racial Justice to really have these conversations, but to make sure the conversations are going to lead to action. And so that that's what our leadership did. You know, um, they they really decided to buckle down and challenge a lot of what was happening to find out whether or not people were actually trying to use their philanthropy for sustainable change, or if it was just something performative. Thoughts on that, Chelsea? I agree completely with everything that Eddie said. <laughs> the same conversations were being had at Spelman um, almost immediately as, as some of these companies came in. And, and a lot of our donors we were engaged with before. Um, and so there were some good partnerships that expanded through this conversation. Um, Microsoft did something really wonderful um, for Morehouse students. They sent out laptops to every incoming freshman. Um, so little things like that that make changes in the home on the day-to-day -day level, um, I think are just as impactful as hearing some big number was given to the institution. I love that. Yeah. I'm curious about your perspective on a couple of things that have been going on in the media lately. Uh, McKinsey Scott gifts, these uh, folks who are coming to announce, you know, the wiping out of student debt, uh, you know, Wilberforce just did it from the school perspective just recently. Um, do you think that the, co the combination of the things that uh, came to the, the nation's uh, recognition last year, plus these kinds of wiping away debts, et cetera, are starting to introduce a new conversation about uh, about HBCUs and um, black students and the the cohort of people in their backgrounds. Is there? Do you think that there's more information or a story that is now um, out in the world that helps HBCUs in a way because of what's been going on the last uh, several months? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. You know, I you know I have to say, uh, Kevin, when when Robert F. Smith did his gift to uh, the class of 2019 in Morehouse, I listened to that commencement speech three times. And the thing I wanted to know was why. Why this class? Why right now? Why Morehouse? And there were some things that he, and I recommend everyone listen very closely to that speech because there was something that he said in the speech. He, he went through this uh, thing where he, where he talked about there was always somebody who was there for him in Denver when he was growing up. And there was always somebody who helped him get from point A to point B. And by the end of the speech, right before he made the announcement, he made the point that, you know, you're going to be dealing with a lot. You're the next leaders. You're the next group of leaders. I want to give you a head start so that you won't be saddled with this extra big bill hanging over your head. I'm going to give you a head start so that you can pay it forward and you can get your career going sooner than later. And so along with that speech, was, there, was this, there was this message of legacy um, because that's, that was another thing he brought up in his speech was that how important it, it was to have his family legacy and somebody had to start that legacy somewhere. And to me, what Smith was telling the class of 2019 in Morehouse is, 
if you don't have a legacy, I'm going to help you start right now. This is this is the beginning of it. This gesture is not money, it's legacy, you know. And and I think that was his really really big message to them. I think with a lot of philanthropists, um, and and you know what Mackenzie Scott did, it, to me again, it's more than money. You know, um, you know people were asking questions. Um, you know, well, why did she pick this one? Why did she pick that one? You know, why why did she pick these places? Um, you know, I, I I have kind of a cheat code. I'm married to a fundraiser, so so I was able to kind of get in there in her head, and I started asking her, why do you think she did this stuff? And one of the things she brought up was, well, you never know who's doing homework on you, and you never know who's visiting your websites, and you never know who's digging into your programs. You never know who's doing that stuff. And so as soon as I got to Dillard, one of the first things I started doing was I started reorganizing a website. I was like, okay, how do we make this thing more, more user-friendly? And so when people ask, why did she give to these certain schools? My guess is that she probably had some researchers who went in and said, you know, this institution is doing something very interesting. And I think a little help is gonna help them go a long way. And so um, now the question is how the institutions are stewards of those gifts. That's the real question. Um, how did they leverage that so that they can't so that they can make some great plans for the next five to 10 to 20 years? Um, but I do see something in the giving. I think is I think the conversation, though, is two way. Number one, you know, is it's what kind of intention does the philanthropist or the giver have? But then number two, how is the HBCU going to be a good steward of that gift that they received? Excellent, excellent point. There's also a conversation that happens with our current students and prospective students about what the giving means for them. Um, and so my office, every day, they're asking, what about this money? What about this? What did this go to? Um, and so I think it's a good moment to appreciate the year that we had, but really realize that we're playing catch up here. Um, of years and years of not having this type of funding coming into our institutions. Um, and so, yes, where's the gifts going and, and how far is it really stretching and, and what's impactful? Um, to your point about legacy, I think really allowing students who otherwise would either not be able to come or have crippling debt um, upon them leaving, uh, that that's a real game changer for generational wealth um, and for the wealth gap between blacks and whites. So if we have 20 students now that can have a full ride for four years, that's meaningful. Um, that's 20 families that may feel very different in 10 years or 20 years. Um, so there's impact there. Um, but we are looking at what is just the beginning of many years of us getting to a, a financial standing that that we all deserve to have as HBCUs. And, and I think there's a really big message in what Chelsea said for students and alumni. And, and I think that one of the things that people really need to understand, this court case that happened in Maryland, you know, that is not because a bunch of black folks got mad one day and decided they wanted their money. It's because the HBCUs in Maryland, like in so many other in so many other states, were just flat out cheated, just cheated systematically, legislatively, policy-related, cheated. And so all that case is about is give us what you owe us. We're not we're not the group of people who can't pull up our bootstraps. We've been pulling up our bootstraps right. real hard for a long time, and the straps are broken, okay? But we're still pulling up the boots. And so, but you owe us. You owe right. us, and that's according to policy. That That's not just people coming for a handout. So what Chelsea is pointing out there that is so important for people to understand is that Mackenzie Scott, bless her heart, and everybody else, the Robert F. Smiths, who really make these big gifts and these great gestures, they are wonderful. They are great. The problem is they are a drop in a very big bucket. And that big bucket is what Chelsea just brought up, a, a wealth gap, a huge, huge wealth gap. So if you imagine a wealth gap like this, we are still building these planes while we're flying them. Um, yep. And we're doing a good job flying them. We're doing a really good job. But there is a lot of frustration in having to build while while flying. 
Yeah, totally. Last question in this in this bucket of of our conversation uh, in the pandemic. Uh, we're a little over time. I want to be super respectful of your days, but have the events, including the pandemic, uh, also obviously the demonstrations for racial justice in the country, have changed the perception or awareness of HBCUs? Uh, and if so, how has that uh, affected the, the goals that you have uh, during this time? So Absolutely. Um so I know we talked a little bit about it changing the perception um, on a larger scale, um, but what I'm really fascinated by is what it's done for black students who may have not have been really considering an HBCU before this. Um, this year, we received a record-breaking amount of applications. Um, and in those applications, the narratives were the same. The narratives were them reflecting on the past year um, and, and what that year meant to them and why Spelman or any other HBCU is the only place that they should have this next step at. Um, so I saw it at a very granular level, level with our students. Um, and then also, you know, conversations in, in, in the community. Um, I think that our people have also had, um, poor ideas about what the value of HBCUs really look like as well. Um, and so allowing us, giving ourselves the grace um, to have that conversation um, and us to return back to loving HBCUs and seeing them as just as good, if not better, um, than the PWI down the street. So I think it's been a great moment for our community. Yeah, and one of the things that's, that's done uh, for us is that is. The moment that we've had, whether you're talking about the pandemic or you're talking about the health pandemic or the racial pandemic, I mean, what that's really done for us um, is really forced us into thorough examination of what our value really is. And not just to the college marketplace, but to our community. Um, what's our value to the civic sector? Where are we in this conversation and and how are we really, really um, affecting change or is it our job to affect change? I mean, wh where are we in this thing? So um, we've really engaged in that conversation, um, you know, from a marketing standpoint, just really defining the value proposition um, and, and really figuring what that looks like. And, and for me, as a marketing director, um, you know, it is really forced me to take a look at the, the basics of marketing, you know, to look right back at that stuff, you know, stuff, you know, the four P's, what is our product? What's the place, the price, and, and what's the promotion? It's really forced me to take a look at that stuff and answer the basic questions so that we can get to that bigger question. Um, because I think that's one thing in our environment that we really forget to do. I think we forget fundamentals a lot of times. Uh, people want the sexy stuff, right? Um, and, and I always joke with, uh, I always joke with folks and, you know, some people got might they might not. They might not like it when I say this, but the unfortunate thing about being in marketing and communications is that a lot of people look at us as the arts and crafts shop. You know, they, <laughs> you know, they need a flyer. Fine. They want to complain about the website. Well, it's your fault. You know, so they come to us. And one of the things that we're saying is, but before we can get to that, we need to answer some critical questions. I, I can tell you, right, my colleagues get upset with me when they want a change made on the website. And I call them up and I say, hey, so what's the point of this? What, what are we doing? Who are, you who are you going after? Who's this message meant for? There's a lot of text on this landing page. Do we really need all of this text? So, I mean, so I, I think really making and, and making people and helping people to realize that those small things, those small, annoying questions, that's what leads to the bigger message. And that's what really helps us evolve and, and show the uh, show our evolution, or I, I should say the evolution of our brand and our brand identity and our value proposition. I love that. Uh, that's exactly right. So now um, we are seeing kind of a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, vaccinations are rolling out uh, into people's arms. I'm curious uh, how things have changed for your institution, or if you think that some of the obstacles that we talked about at the beginning of this for HBCUs as a segment have evolved because of the uh, events of the past year and a half or so. Um, for me, I, I really hate to be the one to say, I think things are kind of the same, um, but, he, but here's, why, here's why I'm thinking this. If you look at the history of HBCUs, things come in waves. Um, and history has a weird way of repeating itself. You know, I'm a 70s baby, so I remember 
coming out of the 70s when I was a little kid and, you know, all of my relatives and, and my parents, friends who these proud Dillard alumni, Xavier alumni, Southern alumni, Grambling alumni, Jackson State, Alcorn, seeing all of these folks, you know, my, my dad graduated from Xavier, as a matter of fact. Um, but then going into the 80s, when you started to have people who said, well, you know, I don't have to go to an HBC. You know what? I really want to go to Tulane and I want to conquer the world from Tulane. And so and unfortunately, what that caused is that it caused some people in a black community become, to become kind of jaded towards HBCUs because you had some folks who got to Tulane or wherever they went. And they, you know, like we like to say, they started to feel kind of brand new. They started feeling themselves. Um, but then we get to the 90s. And there's this awakening, you know, hip hop, public enemy and NWA. And they start they start getting folks in that conscious space. And so and then a different world comes along. Boom. 90s. HBCUs are all the rage again. Then we get into the early 2000s and then we're kind of going back. And now we're at this point of racial reckoning. And now we're back at the inflection point. So um, to me, the thing that I am afraid of right now and it is really a concern for me is that nationally we have seen these increases in HBCU applications. I love the social media posts where there is a picture of a high school graduate and they have all the logos behind them of all the schools that got accepted. And you see some big PWIs and they said, nope, I'm going to go to Albany State. And you know, and you're sitting there going, yes, but I am afraid of that cycle coming when people start saying, Okay, we've done the racial reckoning thing. All right, you know, HBCUs are nice. That's fine. And now we got to wait another 10 years or 20 years before everybody gets hit to HBCUs again. So to me, that's the thing that I'm kind of keeping my eye on. And unfortunately, and I really hate to be cynical about this. I really I really want to be the eternal optimist about this. But I do see some of the same challenges only because of the cyclical nature of these things. And I want to be wrong, believe me. And, and it's my job to fight being wrong on this, by the way. I, I need to, you know, that that's that's where I come in. But um, but that's that's where I'm kind of concerned about society. And that's why I'm thinking we might see some of the same. Excellent points. Chelsea. I definitely agree on oh, the Chelsea, cyclical nature. I, I know. I, I want I'm, you to I'm a realist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not not coming to save you. Um, <laughs> Absolutely agree. Um, but I, I do think there's some things that we can do to make sure that the conversation, at least in our community, does not die down. Um, that we're all seeing ourselves as ambassadors of HBCUs in general. Um, and, and when I get to have those conversations with students or with families, um, talking really generally about why this matters and why it matters right now. Um, so I, I think there's good work and good conversations to be had. Um, but once this blows over, if you will, what does this look like for everyone else? Um, are we still talking about it? Are they still giving to HBCUs um, in the same ways, very public ways that we saw this past year? Um, so I agree. Those are great points. Those are great points, Chelsea. For the record, that doesn't mean we're not doing our jobs. We are definitely doing our jobs. <laughs> definitely. No question at all. No question at all about that. One of the things I keep thinking about in this conversation is before all this even started, uh, higher ed as an industry was uh, facing some significant obstacles in the demographic shifts um, and in giving and all these other things. And now throw in a pandemic and, uh, you know, police brutality, all these other items. Um, what does the future look like uh, for your institutions, do you think? Like, what are what are going to be the things that keep uh, schools like yours alive? Um, is it, you know, a focus on adult learners? Is it um, coming back to get uh, some college no degree uh, offerings? Like, what is it that's going to get all of us through, all of us being higher ed, through the storm that's planned and not yet here? I think um, you mentioned a couple uh, alternate revenue streams, right? I think um, institutions across the board realized that we needed to get creative um, about what other things that we could generate income other than tuition. Um, and so you see the degree completion, you see online learning, um, which are all great things to kind of add to that drop in the bucket as we're talking about funding. Um, and that allows us to support more of our undergraduate students with scholarships. 
Um, so really good stuff. I, I'll also throw into the hat the collapse of standardized testing, which is huge in my world, and it will be huge for application numbers, admit rates, student profiles. Um, that entire um, landscape looks very different because there's one less barrier um, for students in this process. Um, so in some ways, that's helpful as we were seeing a decline in birth, right? Um, so that makes more students eligible to apply and, and um, a larger prospect pool to recruit from. Um, but in, in other ways, it's, it's complicated. Um, we have two years of data that's not going to tell us anything. Um, and so where do we pick up to plan forward? Um, and how can we predict how all of these moving pieces will really affect us in the long run? Um, it's I think we're all just a wait and see approach for for a lot of us. We, we don't know what's going to be in front of us. The thing that really keeps me energized uh, about our future is that people are paying more attention to our past now. There was this conversation I had recently uh, internally about the importance of really talking about the history of Dillard. Um, and how people are really paying attention to that sort of thing. And one of the things that I said during the conversation is, you know, HBCUs have always been an engine of equity, always. Uh, HBCUs have always been the intellectual center of Black America. And that's not going to change. I mean, that is, <laughs> there is a lot of runway on that. And we are continuing that uh, because, I think with the new focus, the new public focus that we have on diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, I think HBCUs fit perfectly into that into that conversation um, because th that's what we have always done. You know, so many HBCUs have pro have uh, produced the first this, the first that, the first this, the first that, um, or the first black this, or the first black that. And you know, going back to what I said earlier about things being cyclical, a few years back, I remember people being pretty cynical uh, and saying, well, we already had the first black, we already had the first black this, they are the first black that. Uh, does that even matter anymore? Well, here comes racial reckoning and here comes this conversation on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And people are saying, oh, wait a minute, that is important. That is really important that HBCUs were able to promote, were able to uh, produce the nation's first black Supreme Court justice, the nation's first black and, and the first female vice president of the United States of America. That is important. And so to me, I think this is and, and, and this is where my job gets a lot of fun. I think really digging into our history and our narrative and going to people and going to the public and saying, hey, you missed something. Check this out. <laughs> you know, uh, and oh, by the way, I have another thing to tell you. And while you were being cynical, we happen to do these other things. I, that's where I, that's where I have a lot of hope. That's where I have a lot of energy. That's where my job really excites me. And that's where I really think that HBCUs can take it advantage of the moment and continue to uh, to really do some great stuff in higher education and and continue. By the way, to continue to build a black middle class and, and, the, and the black upper class and to really continue to produce these game changers and these legacy builders, that, that work has not stopped. And it, it, and it is definitely continuing. I love that. I love that. We have, oh, just a couple more questions. Uh, I'm curious about how the last uh, year and a half has maybe informed uh, or encouraged uh, HBCUs and otherwise, um, the responsibility of an institution has broadened or expands uh, because of the needs that you've identified throughout the pandemic and how you uh, aim to address those in the future. I think about things like mental health and like you mentioned before, Eddie, about access to, to Wi-Fi. Um, how does, does anything of the things you've learned over the last uh, several months inform how you move into the future in terms of what you're offering in terms of support? I would say that um, being proactive about those conversations, um, students are having those conversations independently now. Um, I remember 15 years ago, no one was asking about disability services or health services or mental health. Um, now that may be the third question that a student is, is interested in when they're looking at an institution. Um, so I think knowing 
how important that is to our consumers um, and making sure that it is given that same attention in the ways that we talk about our institution, on our website, in our student programming, um, all of those things. So yes, it is incredibly important. And, and like I said earlier, I think HBCUs are even held to a higher standard of supporting our students through all facets of their life. And to piggyback off what Chelsea is saying, it's really about listening to them very, very closely. Uh, again, you know, President Kimbrough and these, these focus groups that he likes to do with students are so helpful because um, we get to hear them. And the thing that I think is most important is accepting the things that they say that we might not really understand because of our age or you know, we grew up in a different time or, or, or I should say we grew up with a different set of values. Uh, maybe they're growing up in a type of family that we didn't grow up in. And, and so the students will give us these pieces of feedback that'll make us say, well, I didn't know that was a, I didn't know that was that much of a problem. So, you know, to give a to give a, a, a solid, clear example, again, the amount of text on a landing page, you know, on the website. You know, we're sitting here thinking that we're doing something so great when we splatter all of the information we can possibly splatter onto one page. But the student is saying, yeah, that's too much reading. I spent about a half second on that page and I moved on. And, you know, we have people who are getting upset going, yeah, but that's where all the information is. That's every question they asked was right there. They didn't read it. And I think was, was some, what we really have to do is we have to get more in a habit of listening to students when they say that and not judging their answers and saying, well, if that's where the information is, we're gonna keep the website nice, long and text heavy. And if they don't read the information, that's their problem. And, but we can't do that because what they're telling us is you're losing an audience member. And so if, you know, so I, I think for us, you know, that is one of those things that we got that we really have to listen to. The other thing I really would like us to uh, really think about, and, and this is something I folded into um, really thinking about marketing, too. You, you brought up mental health, and I, and I think that is a huge issue, a huge issue um, that we have got to continue to listen to, especially with black students. Um, if a student transfers from a PWI to an HBCU and they go from one environment where they have to deal with microaggressions to another environment where somebody is saying, oh, stop complaining and everything is going to be okay, then we haven't done our jobs and we have not really taken into account that this is our most important resource. We don't have an institution if we don't have a student. So if this student is saying, I have to, I'm dealing with these microaggressions, and right now y'all are treating me as if I'm some kind of kid and blah, 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 and you don't want to listen to me, then we have to figure out how to meet that student halfway, if nothing else. How do we meet that student halfway? And, and mental health is at the center of that conversation. One of the things I said, and it was a joke at the time, but it, it quickly moved on from being a joke to something else. But in the first semester in the in fall of 20, um, you know, the students at Dillard, they, they had some issues. They voiced those issues loudly on social media. And um, I started to say, oh, they're getting cabin fever. Well, that is what was happening. You know, they had been cooped up in their residence halls for a couple of months. Um, they were doing virtual learning, online learning, and they were tired of it. They were just mentally beaten down. They were tired. And so we were very happy that the semester was coming to an end, but it really forced us to think about going back to commun internal communication. It did force us to think about how we communicated with them internally. It forced us to figure out, well, how can we do some programming where they can be in person, but be safe? How can we move to that from the virtual stuff? Um, so those are definitely a, a couple of things that, um, that were teaching moments for us as an institution uh, throughout the pandemic. Awesome. How has uh, the last year and a half informed um, how you will move your marketing and communication strategy in the future? Is it is it changing in any way? Are you going to be more analog now that you've learned, as Chelsea mentioned, that people are have digital fatigue? Like, what, what does it look like from a marketing perspective moving forward now? We, I mean, we got to keep it mixed up one way or the other. Um, I taught a, a freshman year seminar class, and 
one of the things I told the students, much to their chagrin, is that online learning is not gone. As a matter of fact, this is the beginning of it. And you know, they're going to have to learn how to use Canvas. Uh, they're going to have to learn how to use these learning management systems. And so I, I think for us is maintaining that mix because while people do have digital fatigue, one of the benefits of the virtual environment is that, you know, for Dillard, I can say that we were able to get guest speakers that we probably would not have been able to get for another two to three years. Uh, but we were able to pop them on to a virtual environment, do a virtual lecture. The students were elated to be able to uh, ask so-and-so a question. And and so, um, and, the, and these are some big name people that we were able to bring us, Stacey Abrams being one of them. And so that really kind of leveled the playing field as far as exposing students to some big names or people who have something to say, some really big things to say. But I will say that the one marketing thing that I'm paying more attention to going forward, I'm taking a, as deep a dive as I can right now into market research. You know, one of the unfortunate things, and I mentioned this before about being at an HBCUs, we always had this building a plane while, while it's flying attitude. And in marketing, unfortunately, what people tend to look for, they tend to look for Band-Aid solutions. They want lightning to strike when that when that press release goes out. They want lightning to strike. <laughs> they want that viral tweet. You know, everybody wants it. But th those are Band-Aids. That's a part of the marketing mix. And in order for us to really develop an authentic, strong, consistent brand identity, we have to do research. And so at some point, we have to be satisfied with the fact that we're not going to get lightning in a, in a bottle. We're going to have to really create a slow burn. And it's not going to be sexy. It's going to be a grind. But by the time we're done, we're going to have a sustainable solution, a sustainable brand, a sustainable identity. So that's, um, that, that's my big focus uh, for the rest of 2021 is, is really digging into market research. I love that. I think um, one of the things I hope for uh, the entire segment uh, coming out of this, uh, this these challenging days is a recognition that every single thing that happens with your brand is marketing, whether you like it or not. Um, yeah. So the way that you talk about how you're caring for students during a pandemic, how often you communicate with them, what that looks and feels like, what your president is saying, all of those things go into a decision that's being made, whether you know it or not, or like it or not. And I think that's one of the things that I'm, I'm really hoping that the the segment really understands is that just because you say one thing in your view book and all this other stuff is happening on social, on Reddit and what are all these other places that has power too. So understand that and understand, understand where your brand is being talked to or talked about. And I think that's, I think that's great. Chelsea, what about you? What about the future of, uh, of, of your messaging and, and communications practices? Yeah. So I think um, exposure uh, is something that has taken on a new face. I mean, we were always doing virtual events or virtual meetings in some capacity, um, but now it seems incredibly viable to have in-person events, also have a virtual event going on. Um, if we're not able to get on a plane and go to a college fair, there's virtual options. So I think we're just a lot more flexible and how we're reaching students and students are willing to be reached virtually in a different way now. All of our events saw numbers that we would have never seen on campus. Um, and so it, it really allowed us the opportunity to get creative, um, try and put together engaging virtual content um, and reach as many folks as possible. Um, we also have a lot of assets that came out of this year, recordings, uh, videos of events, different sound bites that we're able to run through our social, put on YouTube um, and continue using that content. And those are things that I don't think would have been around um, if we were just on campus and doing everything as we as we have. Um, so, again, diversifying all of our communication, but social media for us still continues to be at the forefront podcast. Um, we're, we're working on an admissions podcast now. So very excited about that. Um, beefing up YouTube, which is the most popular social media app for um, young folks. So really tapping into that. TikTok was new for us this year. Um, so really leveraging all of our social media connections. And that's where those conversations about HBCUs are really, really being had. Awesome. 
Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate both of you. Is there any any last thoughts that you'd like to share that we make sure we include at the uh, end here? Uh, the, you know, the one thing I would say, and, and this is this is a uh, this is a call to to all of my colleagues, but then also to leadership at uh, at HBCUs. And, and and this is going to sound so basic and so nutty, but by all means, please pay attention to the importance of your website. Um, and the reason I say that is. You know, when <laughs> all three HBCUs I've been to, you know, my biggest thing, my biggest thing has been like, okay, the website, we've got to do something with the website. We, and and people will say, well, people don't go to the website. I say, yeah, there's a reason they don't go to the website. <laughs> and so this, it, 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 I get this circular conversation with people. But the reason I say it though is that marketing is about the product. Your website is your primary communicator of your product and its value. So you really have to pay close attention to it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I forgot to mention that is a, another priority of mine is beefing up our search engine optimization. And so uh, that is something that that we've worked very closely on, you know, because one of the responses I had gotten was it's like, well, yeah, yeah, the website, that's fine. But we need some really great advertising. We need to go viral. We need some great press releases. And my response would be, OK, that's great. So they click a link, go to the website, it's still outdated, and then what? So please, 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 website. Say it again for the people in the back. That is so true. That is so true. Chelsea, last thoughts. I don't know if I have any last thoughts. I'm I'm still stuck on website and and some ideas are going on in my head about our personal website. So Yes, the website is, uh, I, I agree with all of your thoughts on that, Eddie. Um, thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for this first uh, conversation. It was exciting. I hope to chat with you all again and have a great day. Thanks so much, yes, Kevin. Kevin. Thank, thank you. So you. Take care. That's it for this week's episode of Higher Voltage, but I'm looking forward to having more great conversations with higher ed thought leaders. If you'd like to learn more about higher education marketing, be sure to check us out on Twitter at Bolt Higher Ed and follow me on Twitter at Kevin C. Tyler 2. Until next time.